Welcome to the Kintsugi Heroes podcast, where we share inspirational stories of everyday people going through different challenges and how they overcome them. Please be aware that the story you're about to hear may have moments of deeply felt emotions and personal experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help keep you safe. If you love this conversation, we'd love you to like and share it with your friends so we can continue to share more inspiration and hope to as many people as possible. Now, listen up for our next hero story. What a beautiful story this one is. The conversation I had with Natalie Stockdale, this amazing journey that she went through and has been on. And she's got these signposts and she calls it the three Ds. D for drought, being in the Australian outback, D for divorce, and D for disease. These three phases of her journey quite monumental and very big so it's not like she just went through the one thing you know she went through these big things and how she navigated each of those and and got through each thing to then take it to the next step and the next step is really what it highlights for me the strength of who she is and her character and now she's a resilience coach um, which is no surprise because she is such a strong woman She's been through a lot and yet she's just such an accepting, loving, grateful person. And um, it was just a joy to speak with her. She's got a brilliant story. I know you're gonna love it. This is Natalie Stockdale. Hi, it's another episode of Kintsugi Heroes. Welcome, and I'm here today with Natalie Stockdale. Natalie, hello, and thank you for being my guest today. Hello, Evelyn. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Very grateful. And I always am in awe of the people, the heroes, really, the, the heroes to me that come along and share their stories. It's not always easy to share a story, and it requires an amount of you know vulnerability and bravery. So I just want to honour you for coming along today to share your story that will give others inspiration and hope. Well, thank you very much. I think we're all heroes, actually. I think everyone has a hero within them because we've all recovered. We've all recovered from adversity. So I think there, yeah, we all have our inner hero. Sometimes we just need to become aware of it and tap into our inner hero. Thank you for saying that. I couldn't agree more. Well, this is about you and your story today. So I'm going to hand over to you and ask you to take us back to the beginning of your story. Okay. Thanks, Evelyn. I might start with um, earlier on with um, my childhood. I grew up in the country and my parents sent me to boarding school in Melbourne um, for six years. I boarded for six years and I actually hated boarding school, to be honest. I felt like I was imprisoned and I could not wait to get out and have freedom. So um, I, I had to stay in, in Melbourne after boarding school for compulsory education. My father said, you're not to go anywhere, not to leave um, Melbourne until you're educated. So I thought the plan that came to mind was if I became a teacher, then I could teach anywhere in the world. Um, I didn't have to be stuck in a city because I, I developed a very quick aversion to cities after being in boarding school. So 
finished Teachers College and then I took up took off up to the Northern Territory and wanted to get I wanted to go to um, to the bush and to into isolated areas for for adventure and also to work with Aboriginal children. So I taught in a very isolated Aboriginal school in the middle of the Northern Territory and then from from there, I went over to, over east to Queensland, to outback Queensland, to Longreach area. And again, I wanted adventure and I wanted you know, to teach and, and I wanted to be in the bush. So I taught as a governess on, on a sheep and cattle station in Western Queensland. Um, met someone, we married, and, and I taught at School of the Air in, in Longreach when we married. And um, my husband at the time was an overseer on a, on a sheep and cattle property not far out of town. And we both thought oh, that this is very comfortable, it's very, this is nice, but we both sought more, more adventure and more challenge. So at the start or early on in a, the drought of 1990, the drought had already um, had its bite, bite on the Longreach area. And at the same time, the sheep prices, the wool prices collapsed. So land around Longreach was, was really cheap at that time. So we thought this is a good opportunity, perhaps our only opportunity to buy land. So we had a big, big mortgage and we bought um, a very rundown old sheep and cattle station, which was 60,000 acres, about 110 k's out of Longreach on the Thompson River. And we thought we were both so young. I was in my early 20s, about 23, when we bought the station. And my husband was yeah, just a few few years older. And we were both very optimistic, but also very naive. We thought the wool prices will pick up and it's got to rain. It's got to rain soon, we, we both told ourselves. And it didn't. It didn't rain for for years. And so um, I maintained my, my um, part-time job teaching at School of the Air, even though it was 110 k's to town on a dirt road. And my husband was working a lot of the time off the station, doing also getting um, making an income, and so I was on the the station quite a, a, a lot of the time alone. And all my three major life challenges happened to start with D. So the first one that I'm about to describe was drought. So those drought years throughout my twenties and thirties were were really really tough. Um, for me, the hardest part was watching the animals suffer, particularly you know, the sheep and the cattle. Um, we had 7,000 sheep and most of them died or were shot during, during the drought. And, and yeah, I was, I was there alone a lot of the time. And sometimes it'd be a, a weeks, weeks where I wouldn't see an, another human, but that was okay because I had, I had certain resilience tools that I was applying unconsciously, but it, it, they enabled me to cope. So some of those include um, social contact, even though I wouldn't see people for, for weeks at a time. We had telephone. So I remember calling one particular neighbour who was um, a widow who lived next door on another, on another station, and we'd call each other once a week and check in with each other. Um, sometimes when my husband would come home, we'd invite other neighbours over or, or we'd go to neighbours' places and have social get-togethers. And we just savour those moments. Sometimes we'd have picnics on, on the river, on the very rapidly drying waterhole, and just savour those moments of joy until next time. Um, gratitude was, was another resilience tool that worked very well for me But that in those times. I was really grateful to have a home in the bush, grateful to have my, my um, loving and hardworking husband, and, and also very grateful for my 
pets my and my my um animals and pets were very um important companions to me at the time even my little chooks i had little bantam chooks um that would come you know um, sunset they'd come up to the veranda and even sit on my lap and be patted and i had a pet my pet sheep um and a you know, cat and and our kelpies and some jack russells so i had quite a menagerie of animals and they yeah they they their company i always treasured and was always grateful for and at sunset you know, when it cooled down would i take the animals for a walk along the the track sometimes with a, i'd carry a handsaw and cut the mulga branches down for the for the sheep as we walked along so although the t- the drought was really tough i did i did cope with it with those with those resilience tools that I just outlined. I, um, for people who haven't experienced droughts, I'll just, I'll, I'll just share a, a brief story which illustrates how, how sad and how hard they can be. The 7,000 sheep were dying, were very slowly, slowly dying, like with, a, with um, a flood or a bushfire, both horrific. But, but it's over quickly. But with droughts, it's very insidious and a slow, slow death and lo- long-term suffering. And it wears you down. It certainly wears the animals down. And at one stage, with the, we had to make the decision, what do, you know, we still have starving sheep. And we decided to shoot 2,000 sheep when my husband w- was home um, one, one weekend. So we set up some portable sh- steel sheep yards you know, about 10 kilometres away from the house. And I was on my horse, my stock horse, and I was walking behind this mob of 2,000 sheep and we're walking them to what became the killing yards. And my, my husband was also in a, in a ute and picking up the sheep who, you know, who were collapsing and couldn't make it and walked them to the killing yards. And, and my husband had the, had the rifle and he, he um, shot them all. I remember riding my horse back to the homestead, hearing the bang of the bullets all, all the way. And it was it was heartbreaking because it's not really what we were expecting. We were we were wanting our animals to be flourishing, and it was quite the antithesis of that. They were they were suffering and dying. So over years, it, it does uh, anyone who's been through really severe Western Queensland droughts. It it is it is tough. But as I said, I I did have certain resilience tools that I, that um, I was very grateful for. So. In the outback, in the bush for my twenties and thirties, and then my husband at the time uh, decided he had had enough of grazing, so we thought, okay, well, let's start a, a new a new way of life. What are we going to do? Neither of us knew, so we thought, let's uh, follow our hearts and do some just do something that we would really uh, lift lift our hearts and, and excite us. So. After we sold our property, we both went on our individual dream holidays and um, I went to the Bahamas to swim with dolphins because I just always thought that would be a wonderful thing to do, to swim with wild dolphins. So I flew over to the Bahamas and unfortunately I, I arrived at the same time as a hurricane, Hurricane uh, Rita, she was called. And so, we, unfortunately, I wasn't able to swim with the dolphins, but after the, the hurricane passed, I was able to sail with the dolphins. And that was the first time I'd ever been on a yacht, first time I'd ever sailed. And, and then there were the dolphins in the sea, and, and I absolutely fell in love with, with the dolphins, of course, but, but also with sailing and the ocean. And I thought, wow, this is, this is, ocean life is really for me. So that was it. 
a turning point. Um, I met my husband back in, we met, he had his experience too. We met back in San Francisco and I was excited about my experience. He was excited about his experience. So we thought, let's create a new life based on these, on this, this new, these new interests. So we bought, um, lovely property in, in, on the south, far south coast of New South Wales. And it was, oh, I think it was about 200 acres on, on a river estuary. And, and, uh, my husband had, he had his business plans with horses. And, and I, I'd ended up buying a yacht, um, um, and started a sailing charter business with whales and, and dolphins. I wanted to, to really, um, share, share my love and passion for, for animals and particularly those animals with people. So I had my sailing charter business for a couple of years and we were living, I was just so full of gratitude. We were so happy. In fact, one of my girlfriends called our home Happy Valley because we had um, our menagerie of animals, the stock horses that we'd brought from Queensland, um, our kelps and our working kelpies, Jack Russells, more chooks. And also uh, I adopted two pigs who played Wilbur and Charlotte's Web and they, um, they used to all live together in a, in a big undulating, beautiful paddock with a lake. And anyway, life was pretty idyllic. And I, we had three daughters at that stage and the three daughters were going to a nice little bush school. Anyway, I thought, um, and I was grateful. I was so grateful for everything that we had because it was such a contrast to our life in, in the outback. And I was so grateful that the girls were going to normal you know, mainstream schools instead of school of the air. Um, I was even grateful for the wheelie bins. It's a wheelie bin service, so we didn't have to take our rubbish into our own big hole in the ground. And I was grateful that we had clean, like really clean water instead of dam water because we never, in the bush when we had dam water, we couldn't have white clothes because everything just turns brown. So we actually had clear water. And I remember being so grateful for that because it meant that we could have white clothes. Yeah, I was, yeah, anyway, it was, they were really happy golden times, but they were short lived. So that brings me to the second D or second, um, challenge, which was divorce. Um, my, my husband met someone else and the marriage ended. Um, after 18 years, together for 23 years, um, and married, married for 18 years. And I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that. And I, nor did I have the resilience tools that I needed for that. And I didn't cope with it well. I was stressed and I held on to my stress. And I made, uh, I know now that when you do, when you are stressed, it affects your cognitive, um, functions, including your decision making. So I, I ended up, making poor decisions, decisions that I would do, would have made differently now if I had these, if I had the skills that I now have. So I ended up uh, going down to, I had to close my business, sell the yacht, close the business and um, and we had to sell the, the property as well. It was 2009 GFC, so we lost a lot of money on with everything, with the, with the sales. So I thought, that if I go down to Melbourne, and by that, that stage I had a degree in animal welfare, and I thought if I go down to Melbourne, I could um, start again as a as a humane humane educator, teaching people about animal welfare. So I was lucky, very lucky, to be offered a job as a humane educator down down in Melbourne. So I went down, and the, my three daughters didn't want to come with me because they. I completely understand they had an aversion to cities because they'd only been in, in, in the bush. 
they wanted to stay in their familiar surrounds. So I yeah, made the very tough decision. I, um, they didn't want to come with me, so I told them that I, I've got to go because I've got to provide for them and provide for me and for them. So I went down to Melbourne and they stayed up um, up there with the, up in New South Wales with their father. And that was um, absolutely heartbreaking, devastating. I remember driving away and looking in the rear vision mirror, seeing my three girls huddling and crying um, in the mirror. It still makes me sad when I think about it now. And um, and I went, went down to Melbourne and um, it was it was even though I was among four four million people in Melbourne, it was the lonely loneliest time, loneliest experience I, I've ever had down there. But yet I was um, working as a humane educator, and I thought this is um, it's it's meaningful work, and I'm I'm being a role model for my girls, you know, to, you know, to be to be a provider. So I battled on, I pushed through, um, and I didn't I didn't have the resilience tools that I used in the bush. I, I wasn't grateful. I wasn't grateful, I, other than being grateful for my job opportunity. Um, I wasn't grateful for anything else. I didn't I didn't have uh, friends down there. I didn't have my animals. I didn't have the bush. I didn't have nature. Um, I did exercise. I suppose that was one one resilience tool that I applied at the time. But anyway, it it wasn't enough. I lacked the tools that I needed to take care of myself. And consequently, uh, eighteen months after the the um, the marriage breakup, I ended up with the. Th- Third D disease. I ended up with with cancer, with, with breast cancer. So that um, knocked me down for for about a year. I had to. I had um, treatments, um, surgery. Uh, thankfully, the the surgeons did a fantastic job. I had a mastectomy and, and a rebuild, and chose despite all the pressure. I chose not to have um, chemo. Um, I just wanted wanted the cancer cut out. And then I just wanted to be left alone and to rebuild my health um, alone. That was just my choice. I'm not by, by any means saying this is what you should do, but that's, that was what felt right for me. Despite the pressure, by the way, there was so much pressure by the um, medical industry to have more more treatments, including chemo. But anyway, that's that's aside. So I had survived the cancer um, when I was recovering from mastectomy and rebuild. That was a, a major operation. To, um, it's called the tra- tram flap reconstruction. Some of the women who might be listening might have might have an experience of a tram flap reconstruction, but it's quite and you know, it cuts a lot of muscles through your core and transplants that um, flesh from your belly area into your into the breast area and it's it takes a long quite a long time to recover like I remember not being able to walk for about a week and, and you know while while I did recover I thought I'm not I don't want to stay home and be miserable thinking about myself I thought I'm I want to use this um, time of my, my healing time to help animals again and so there was um, a campaign, an issue in South Africa, an animal welfare issue that needed help, needed international help. So I voluntarily f- flew to South Africa and did some volunteer work helping helping um, an animal welfare campaign, which I'm glad I'm glad I did because now I realise that having a, having a purpose 
and kindness are actually they are they are tools for resilience so unconsciously i was actually using those tools for resilience and then i came back and then i was offered um and had this um, amazing opportunity to work again in the animal welfare world um for the jane goodall institute which is an organization that helps to promote protection of, of great ape chimpanzees great apes and also kindness to all animals so I ended up. I had the you know, very good good fortune of becoming the the CEO of the of the Jane Goodall Institute Australia, and it was a very meaningful job. and And I was so grateful grateful for it. And I was there for for nearly four years. And then, but all the time, I was thinking, hmm, why did I become so sick when I've never never been sick before? And breast cancer is not in my family history. So I thought. Uh, why and the oncologist i asked the oncologists why and they each of each of them said oh it's random oh you've been struck it's just like being struck by lightning it's just bad luck but i i thought there was probably more to the story so i i discovered the link between stress and disease i, I realized learned that when we hold on to stress and toxic negative um depleting emotions for a long time it compromises our immune system and opens the door to to cancer to to disease and in my case it was cancer so i became more interested in personal development and and in that link between stress and and disease and also between happiness and resilience so i ended up resigning from my my from my job and stepped aside from my work for animal welfare which was a really really hard decision actually i felt a lot of guilt um with with that decision because i thought i'm abandoning animals because i always thought up until then my life purpose was to be of service to animals i really felt that in my heart and it still actually is in my heart but i needed to just step aside and go in a, a different a different direction so i yeah, resigned and then i i began the study of mind body medicine and oh, kinesiology and various stress management therapies such as the therapy from the institute of heart maths and um i yeah, became very interested in, in that and i started my own wellness business or resilience training business called stockdale wellbeing back in uh 2018 and there i had a, a client and he was suffering from anxiety and he was pacing up and down he was so agitated he couldn't sit down he was walking up and down so agitated and he said how do other people make the pain go away how do other people find happiness again and i thought gosh they are really good questions and thinking back when i was going through my my challenges of the of the divorce and all that the trauma that 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 um opened for me I I would have loved to have known how how do other people rise from that type of trauma. Sorry for the interruption. This is Ian Westmoreland, the founder of Kintsugi Heroes, and thank you for listening to this story from one of our amazing heroes. Our mission is for these stories to provide hope and inspiration to people experiencing life challenges and to also educate the broader community on how best to provide support. If you would like to help us continue to produce more hero stories and cover more adversity themes, we would welcome all donations. These can be made via our website, kitsukiheroes.com.au. The donate function is at the bottom of the homepage. We'd also welcome any feedback. You can email me direct using ian at kitsukiheroes.com.au. 
Now let's get back to the story. I was living on my yacht on, in the Sunshine Coast and COVID had begun. So I thought this is a really good time to explore the answers to that, to that question. How do other people rise, rise from, from pain? So I wrote my first book on, while on the, on the yacht. And my first book is actually here. It's called Campfire for the Heart. And it's a book of 30, 30 people. They're all Australians, actually 30 Australians. Um, including Lindy Chamberlain, Creighton, Matt Galinsky, Gail Shan. Quite a few of them I found on by watching Australian Story and Landline. And anyway, it is a book of 30 people <clears throat> and how they've risen from pain. And that, that brings me to where I am now in 20 or 2022. I wrote my second book, same theme, but this time with my second book, which is called Campfire for a Woman's Heart. It features the story of 25 remarkable women and how they have risen from pain and trauma to, to happiness and peace and, and self, self empowerment. But from both my own life experience and all my study of mind-body medicine and stress stress management, as well as writing the stories of many many people who have who have risen from hardship successfully, I have formulated or distilled a list of twenty-five resilience tools. And what I do now, when if I am facing hardships or challenges, which are, are ongoing, of course, just because we're resilient, it doesn't mean that we don't face ongoing challenges, that challenges and hardships are an inevitable part of life experience. But what I do now when, when they occur is I think about my list. Sometimes I even actually look at my list of 25 tools and I ask myself, what tools do I need to apply now to help me through and help me rise from from this challenge so i have now i've accumulated a bank so so my my advice to people who are suffering or who, who may be have experienced any any of those you know droughts and divorces and, or diseases or any any other trauma my advice is to be prepared be prepared for pain with a robust bank of resilience tools, actually write them down, write them down and draw upon those that you need. And there'll be different tools for different, for different um, situations. One of the most common that I use is called the Stockdale Paradox. James Stockdale was a, an American uh, soldier during Vietnam and his plane was shot down. As he was descending down into Vietnam, he knew that his life was changed. He knew that he was going to face hardship. And as he was descending, he, he knew that he would, that he would, um, it would not only be a turning point in his life, but it would actually, it, it would actually, um, be an experience that he wouldn't trade. He would turn this hardship into, into a positive experience. And how did he do that? How did he ended up there, um, tortured and imprisoned for seven and a half years? Although he suffered, he did manage to, to survive and thrive. And how did he? One of his main keys, is now become known as the Stockdale paradox. So he always maintained optimism that he would prevail, he would get through this, but he balanced that with realism. He addressed the reality of the situation. He didn't put his head in the sand. He addressed the reality of the situation and did what he had to do in order to survive. But he never gave up. He never gave up. And I know um, with Lindy Chamberlain Creighton, when she was in her abyss, 
after she was falsely accused of, of murdering her baby, Azaria, and she was in prison and she was treated very badly in prison. And um, in the book, before the book, um, Linda shared with me that she also used the Stockdale paradox. She she knew it was going to be hard. She didn't pretend it was going to be a holiday in prison. And she was given dreadful jobs, awful jobs to do in prison, but she just rolled up her sleeves and got on with it, faced the reality of it, but never, never gave up. She always knew that the truth would prevail. So that's the Stockdale paradox. Another uh, very useful tool that, that I use is, is acceptance, just accepting what you can't change and finding peace with that rather than resist, resisting, resisting all the time. I do have a, a, a storyteller in my first book, Campfire for the Heart, Bill Brayshaw. He talks about acceptance and how he used it when he was five years old. It's, his story is, uh, is called the Northern, a Northern Territory Love Story. He's from the Northern Territory. But when he was five years old, there, during the war, during the Second World War, they had a Polish refugee staying on their farm. And he said the family all went out working on the farm and, and every morning their cat would just climb into their wood stove to warm up while the door was open and then you know cat would be warm and then um this one particular morning the polish refugee didn't realize the cat's routine and he closed the door on the on the cat accidentally or not realizing the cat was there and stoked the stoked the stove and burnt the cat and bill brayshaw little five-year-old came into the kitchen with his family and they could all smell and see that what had happened and someone opened up the door of the oven and he said Bill was crouched down looking into the oven, saw the dead cat, burnt cat, and he said he turned around to his family who were all looking at him, all waiting for his reaction. And he said he had to accept it. He said there was no no point, no point in wishing it didn't happen and in, in becoming distressed about it because it had happened, acceptance. And he said, never forget the first time he used acceptance and he, he used it throughout his life with all the, the other various um, you know, tra tragedies and challenges that he faced. So that's very important. Detachment is another one. Detachment is when it's often misunderstood. Sometimes people think detachment means you, you don't care, but detaching doesn't mean you don't care. Detachment means when you can step back from a situation and look at it with objectivity. You can feel the emotions, but you don't get caught up in the emotions. You don't let the emotions control you. An example of a time where I used detachment was not, not long after my mastectomy and my rebuild. And I actually, I'm, I'm scarred from hip to hip all, all the way across. It's quite a prominent scar from the surgery. And I went to a bathers shop and I wanted uh, and I asked the the sales lady for bikinis that would be high enough to cover my scar and she said oh breast cancer these days is just like catching a cold she said you just get a little sniff then you get over it and I thought wow <laughs> to myself I thought wow it's a really interesting response about breast cancer when you know so many women die of it and and it, it impacts probably most of us in some either directly or indirectly but that was her her experience so i practiced and i practiced detachment i just paused thought well that's that's her level of understanding and let it go i didn't didn't let it upset me but i didn't buy her bikinis either <laughs> but that's detachment is is also very healthy 
sincere self-care is another one. And I don't mean self-care like lighting a candle, having a bath. I mean really asking yourself how you would like to be treated. It means sincere self-care means treating yourself as, as you would treat someone that you really love. So sometimes self-care means asking people, if you're living with someone, it means asking people to understand that you need, you need something. You're like, you, you need some, uh, you need to be alone or you need to go and do something. It, it's, it's, it's sincere self-care. Having a life purpose is, is another tool. Almost every storyteller in my, in my campfire books talk about how their, um, their tragedy or trauma has presented them with a life purpose. I think that's very helpful. Steve Parrish is one of the storytellers in, in the first book. He's the renowned photographer, wildlife and nature photographer. And he talks about a creative life purpose, having a, a creative life purpose. When we have a life purpose, it, it helps us to focus on what, it, what matters to us rather than being dis distracted by other things. Um, and our life purpose is dynamic. It can change. Like mine used to be to, um, to be of service to animals. And that is still very much a part of who I am, but it's not entirely who I am and why I get up every day. Now, now my creative life purpose is about fostering love and love and kindness. So to, to animals, to nature, to each other, and also to ourselves. I think the world is so much better if we were all kinder and more loving because we can choose peace we can choose to be peaceful we can choose joy we can choose happiness it's a, it, it is a choice it's so beautiful natalie i mean you've just shared like what was four four tools and already i can see how helpful and important and just so powerful they would be for anybody going through you know, trauma, adversity, pain, any, any kind of difficult experience. I've got a couple of questions, if that's okay. Um, and thank you also for taking me through your story of the three Ds. There's, there's phases of the journey. What a remarkable, contrasting, colourful journey you've had, you know, to be out in the bush, to then move closer to, you know, I guess from outback Queensland, which is very different from southern New South Wales, and then, of course, the city. So you've really experienced the whole contrast of Australia, right, in in those places that you've lived. And from the majority of Australians, we don't know what drought is like. Those that live in the rural, the, 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 the cities and uh, the East Coast, especially, you know, where majority of the population is. And those listening from around the world have probably never experienced drought. And it, and it is from my understanding, and you described it really well, how it's this very long, slow, painful, drawn-out process of waiting, hoping, and then slow death. You, you had the resilience tools then and, and you connected with others. Did, did you have someone else or any kind of other help that you relied upon to get you through that? Or was it just yourself and your own resilience tools? Social contact was was very important. So not not necessarily the physical contact because we were also isolated, living on our various properties. Um, but yeah, that having the telephone, even the, the two way radio, when it if it did rain somewhere, everyone would you know, go to their two way radio and you know say how 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 much rain we had. There was very much a, a, 
a, a social connection. And when my you know, husband did come home, there was you know that companionship. I wasn't alone all the all the time by any means. But he would go away for you know sometimes up you know th three weeks at a time where I wouldn't see anyone. And and actually when it did when the big rains did come, um, we were caught out stuck out on our property for for six six weeks at a time. Um, but I wasn't alone then. But yes, yeah, social, social connection um, always was very important. But that, that's why I found Mel my time in Melbourne after my um, marriage ended. That's why I found that so difficult because I was just so lonely and I was really yeah, missing my old my old friends. And another thing that I, that made it so hard for me in uh, Melbourne was I wasn't living authentically. Authenticity is is another tool for resilience and. and Living authentically means that your inner world, it's your values and dreams and everything that's important to you is reflected in your outside world. It's you know, what you do, where you live, the people you associate with, the work you do. Um, and that's yin. Yin is the inside and yang is the outside. So when the yin and the yang is not balanced, that is stressful. That's And that was a, like a, another layer of stress, which I'm sure contributed to, to my disease. Oh, that's it's so so good to hear you say this and share it and and I love how you explored you know after your recovery from the disease and you know what caused it and what you're questioning why and a lot of people don't question why and and well done for doing that was that the stepping stone then for you to go back and live on the yacht and then you said you decided to do the book um my I likened my cancer experience to having a snake inside a house. The cancer was in my body like a snake inside the house. And thanks to the brilliant work of the surgeons, the cancer was removed from my body as like a snake being removed from the house. But I knew and I thought to myself, if now that it's removed, if I don't figure out how it got in in the first place, it can come back. So that that was the that's what led me to um, to yeah, stepping aside from my animal protection work into into the wellness work. I just wanted to prevent or to help pre prevent the snake from coming back in. Beautiful analogy, really is, and I love the way you thought about it because it's very conscious and self-loving because you're saying, well, I don't want to repeat this. What do I need to do differently in future to make sure I don't repeat this? Yes, because there are always lessons in adversity, always. And these lessons are the gifts. So I don't look at it, I no longer look at, at, at adversity as a terrible thing. I always, there's, there is always a silver lining. There are always lessons and we grow and become uh, wiser and more experienced and, and, and stronger. And, and I think in, in many ways, if we choose, we can become better people from our characters grow and become. We can come become better people through through our hardships. So I I don't I don't I don't dread hardships anymore. I, I I embrace them and think what what can we what is there to learn from this? How can I grow from this? Always. That's so inspiring. So my question is around the book actually. So what gave you the idea to write the book? Oh, it was that client that I mentioned who was suffering from anxiety, the one who was pacing up and down and who, who said, how do other people find happiness and how, how do other people make the pain go away? That was, yeah, that was really the impetus. And fortunately, I, I sat with, sat with his, his questions for years. And then we, when COVID came and, and, um, my, I was, was actually, um, 
was only a young business, but I had started uh, running workshops, training people about resilience, and then I had to cancel. And I thought, well, I'm going to use this time to to explore the questions, to find out how other people rise from hardship, and and that's so that's why I wrote the book on the yacht. And getting back to your question about why the yacht, it's because when um, after my marriage ended, and I still had my sailing charter, I had my yacht from my sailing charter business, um, and I either had to sell it or or um or keep it, you know, just pay my husband his share of it. And I, I thought maybe I could um sail it down to Melbourne and live on the yacht while I was in Melbourne doing my humane education work. And my father at the time, with good intentions, he was you know, he's being the protective father, he said, Natalie, that is the most stupid thing you've ever the most stupid idea you've ever come up with. So I thought, oh, all right, I'll just have to do what most people do and and rent. So I just um Sold, sold the with my husband and I sold the yacht and, and I, I rented in Melbourne. So it I missed missed the yacht and missed the water and missed sailing and yeah, it did take me eleven years before I was in that position again to to buy a yacht and ah oh, I just love it. So now um, currently I'm living in I'm living authentically. So I'm living where my yang, out, outer world, is a reflection of my inner world and my values. So I'm living in the wet Sundays, and and I have I, I lived in my yacht for 18 months, but now I'm living in an apartment. But um, I'm so glad I had that experience of living on the yacht. It's just something that I wanted, really wanted to experience, and I'm so glad I did because there are so many, um, again, character character growing. Um, uh, outcomes from from living on a living on a boat and putting yourself outside your outside your comfort zone. It was fun. So living in the wet Sundays and uh, reminding myself what my what my um, creative life purpose is every day. And I'm writing books about inspirational people and how they've risen from from their own hardships, while teaching and ins- hopefully inspiring other people to to overcome their hardships. I find it so satisfying when people message me and say, I've just read your book and story, the you know, chapter 12 or chapter 17 really, I've re- uh, really related to that because of the shared, shared experience and how much, how much it has helped them. That, um, such feedback make, makes my heart sing and it just makes me want to do, to, to do more and more. That's beautiful. I can only imagine. Um, as we come to a close, I know you've given tools and lots of story and, and wonderful supportive messages, but I ask all my guests this, and that is if there's someone listening to this who has is experiencing or is going through something similar, like to any of the elements of your story, is there something you'd like to share with them that might help them? Probably one of the most important, I've already, I think I've already shared about four or five different resilience tools, but another very important one that I wish I knew many years ago is mastering your thoughts. Open your awareness to your thoughts. Don't just let your thoughts run wild. Open your awareness to your thoughts and ask yourself, is this thought helpful to me or is it harming me? Is it helpful or is it harming? And if it's harming you, if it's not being of service to you, Delete it, delete that thought and replace it with a helpful thought. 
and of course, never, never giving up, never giving up, because there are ways to rise. And now, gosh, and with like the interview, you're in, always interviewing people about their hardships, and I'm mean, writing books about people and how they've risen from hardships. People go through terrible, horrible experiences, and they rise. So we all can. We, as I said at the very start, we all have a hero within us. We just need to tap into it. Find, find your own resilience tools, draw upon them and never give up. Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. That's just so inspirational and I'm really grateful for you sharing your story today. Thank you for coming. My pleasure. I'm grateful to you. Thanks, Evelyn. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Kintsugi Heroes. Please like and share the show to your friends so we can get this out to even more people. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please reach out using the contact details below and join us next week for our next Heroes story. Until then, keep being you and remember that we are all heroes in our own unique way. Only when it's broken Only when you're broken Only when